people in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood, in your neighborhood. Say, who are the people in your neighborhood? Well, they're the people that you meet when you're walking down the street. They're the people that you meet each day. Good morning. Some of you recognize that song from Sesame Street. Anybody remember Bob singing that song? A couple of you are old enough. Uh, I was going to go with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but on my street we actually have a guy that we call Mr. Rogers, and so I didn't think it was fair to him to, to use his song. Uh, welcome this morning. Who are the people in your neighborhood? Do you know? Who are the people in your neighborhood? That's the question. We've been uh, for, for about a year now, we've been preparing for this citywide movement of neighboring where we're calling on the people of the greater Austin area, including Georgetown, to go out and get to know their neighbors. And we're encouraging them, hey, this is not about going and being somebody's friend so that we can do whatever. We just want to be good neighbors because we believe that's what the Bible calls us to do. Some of you guys may have started your neighboring groups this week, or maybe uh, you're planning to join one in the coming weeks, whether it's already started or getting ready to start, whatever it is. We encourage you to sign up at the back if you haven't uh, found a group already in your neighborhood to be a part of. Join one of these Love Where You Live groups. It's very informal. It's very unintimidating. It's a great opportunity to invite your neighbors into your home and say, let's have a discussion about what it looks like to be a good neighbor. And this last week, the very first session was on presence. What does it look like to be present in your neighborhood? And hopefully some of you guys have already had that discussion with your neighbors about just being together. And and I think we see throughout Scripture, we see uh, Jesus saying, man, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how can you love them unless you're present and involved and active in their lives? And I I think there's something in every single one of us that desires that kind of love. We desire that kind of relationship. It kind of just calls to us. It's it's built into our DNA. And uh, I was thinking about that commandment this week, and I was thinking about getting to your neighbor, and this question kind of popped into my mind before we get get to looking at the scripture this morning. The question popped into my mind is, what's driving you? What's driving you? Now, some of you would say, well, that's a Ford commercial and a scholarship program, right? So if you're like me, I drive a little black Ford Ranger. So what's driving me is a Ford. Others of you, I know my brother-in-law is going to lose it because I'm mentioning Ford and he's a Chevy guy. So what's driving him is, is a Chevy, right? Uh, some other people say, man, we went through Dave Ramsey. So this is what's driving me, uh, 1986 Hugo, right? That's my Dave car. I'm, I'm trying to be faithful and do the Dave thing, and others of you say, man, I'll tell you what's driving me. I'd rather be driving a Titleist, right? And uh, this is my front lawn. Uh, no, I wish. I wish that was my front lawn. There's a competition in our neighborhood right now to see who can get their yard there first, right? Uh, so someday, someday I'll be there. Um, so what's driving you? I think every, everything that, that we all do Deep down inside of us, and this is not what we're talking about when we say what's driving you, but deep down inside of us, uh, we have an ultimate motivation. Like when you get out of bed each morning, what is your ultimate motivation for doing the things that you do? What is it that drives you to go to work? What is it that drives you? Is it, some people would say, man, it's my kids. They drive me. My kids drive me crazy, right? 
my kids are driving me. Other people say, man, it's my motivation to get my kids to be number one at everything. Other people would say success. I just want to be successful. I want people to look at me and say, there's a guy, there's a, a woman who's successful. Some people would say money. Uh, money is what's driving me. And you're thinking, can you say that out loud? Yeah, because 60% of millennials say that money is their ultimate motivation. They want to be rich. I'll tell you what, in order to be rich, you've got to move out of your parents' basement, stop sitting in the coffee shop with your man bun, and go get a job, right? It's got to happen. Uh, other people would say, man, I, the thing that's driving me more than anything is that I want to be funny. I want to just have fun. Like, that's why I do everything that I do. Or I, I just want to look good. That's why I eat, you know, on a really strict diet. I work out all the time because I just want to look good. I'm concerned about my appearance. There's all sorts of motivations for the things that we do. And, and I challenge you to think through what is your ultimate motivation. And think about your ultimate motivation when it comes to your Christian life. What is the thing that drives your Christian life? For some people, it's their church attendance. Like everything they do is, I've got to be at church. I want to be there. I've got to be there. And, and they feel like that's what's driving their Christian life. For others, it's, it's quiet time or, or time in prayer or their, or their service. And so they go out and they serve the poor or they, they, uh, they serve somewhere within the church. And that's kind of driving their Christian walk. And I think there's four, four things that um, when we think about what's driving you, people say, you know, here's why I do what I do. And for some people, it's because they want to earn God's favor. They want to earn God's favor. They've misunderstood what the scripture says and what God calls us to. And they think, if I could just do a little bit more, then God would perhaps love me more. Because they don't understand that, that God loves you. And he's demonstrated that love through his son, Jesus Christ. Other people would say, you know, it's not so much about earning God's approval as earning favors, right? If I scratch God's back, he's going to scratch mine. So if I say this prayer right, then he's going to help me win the lottery. Like 20%, you get this, 20% of Americans are praying to win the lottery. So look down your row, find 10 people closest to you. Two of them are praying that they're going to win the lottery. Make sure you get to know them before they leave here, right? Uh, how many people are praying that their sports teams would win? If you're a Cowboys fan or a Longhorn, you're, you're obviously not praying right, right? Uh, pray a little harder. But these are the things people are thinking, man, if I, if I go to church on Sunday, those Cowboys, they're going to pull through. Or if I, if I say, if I give the right amount, then God's going to scratch my back and, and he's going to put more money in my bank account. And they, they try to earn things. They try to earn favors from God. Other times, people just like keeping score. I'm guilty of this one, right? I just like keeping score. Uh, I, if I could check boxes all day long, that's what I would do. And some people think, as long as I'm doing this better than this guy next to me, then I'm good. I'm just going to keep score of all the holy things that I do for God. But it's really this last motivation, this last thing, is what God calls us to. And, and it's really the only one that's scriptural. And that is that, that everything we do, every motivation that we have, ought to come from a desire to experience and express God's love. Our ultimate motivation ought to be to experience and express God's love. And, and we see this clearly in Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. This is uh, Tuesday. 
of the Passion Week. So about Tuesday of the week, Friday or Thursday, Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be put on trial overnight. He's going to be beaten. He's going to have his beard plucked out. He's going to have a crown of thorns shoved down on his head. And on, on Friday, he's going to be crucified, right? So this is in Jesus' last few days. And here's what happens. Verse 34 of Matthew chapter 22. When the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. So here's what's going on. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day have already determined that they are going to kill Jesus. They are out to get him. And so they have to find some legal reason, some justification for them to kill Jesus. And so they've been asking him all these questions, trying to test him, trying to get him to slip up, to, to commit blasphemy, so that they can have a reason to kill him. So the teacher of the law comes to him. It says he's already silenced one group of them, the Sadducees. And so now one of the Pharisees comes to him and he says, Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Now this may seem like a weird question to us, but in Jesus' day, this actually wasn't that weird of a question. It was something that was debated all the time. All the rabbis, all the teachers of the law would debate this question because throughout the Old Testament, I mean, we think about the Ten Commandments. That's what we think of when we think of the law, we think of the Ten Commandments. But what the rabbis of Jesus' day had done is they went and they looked throughout the entire law, uh, the first five books of the Bible, and they said, there's actually 613 commandments here. That's almost two for every single day of the year, right? I can't even keep the ten. And they're coming up with 613. How in the world am I ever supposed to remember 613 commandments? And so they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to boil it down to the absolute most important one, and we'll just focus on that one first. And if we can always keep the first one, then, then that'll be it. And so there's a debate, which is the most important commandment? And so Jesus answers the question. He said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Boom. Mic drop. There is no way that they can come after Jesus. He goes and he quotes one of the most famous passages of of Scripture in the Jewish faith. The Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest command. And then he says the second greatest command is to love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commands depend on these two. They hang on these two. All other commands are driven by these two commands. And so we see this and and we say, wow, this sounds simple, right? Love God. Love my neighbor, that's very simple. I, I mean, love comes naturally. There's all types of love. We, we have natural love, like the love a parent feels for their child, or the love a child fares, feels for their parent. You just can't help but love them. But there's also developed love, the kind of love that you develop with a friend over the years as you go through thick and thin together and you become close You become knit together and they're your best friend and you love them and you would give or do anything for them. Or it's the kind of love that, that, uh, you know, boy meets girl. A boy calls girl and asks her on a date. Well, not today. Nowadays they text 
and they don't actually ask each other on a date. It's just kind of like, hey, are you going to be there? Because I might be there too if you're going to be there, right? And uh, so there's, you know, they don't want to ask out because that would be awkward. And so they just show up and they just hang out. But boy meets girl, you fall in love over time. You fall in love. We, we understand that developed love. But what about commandment love? How in the world can I command my heart to love someone? How in the world can I command my heart to love my cranky neighbor? Right? We all have cranky neighbors. Some of you are the cranky neighbor, right? So how do I command my heart to love this person? And what we have to understand is our very first point this morning is that our love for God and our neighbor is a response to God's love for us. Our love for God and for our neighbor is a response to God's love for us. If we have received God's love, then we ought to respond in kind, and we love Him back, and we let that love flow through us. It ought to be evident to everyone around us. 1 John chapter 4, we read this. 1 John chapter 4, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. Love is from God, and and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so what he's saying here is he's saying, look, you have been created in the image of God. When you were born, you were born in the image of God, and God is love. It's built into you to love and to be able to respond to that love. And then he goes on to talk about how God has shown his love to us. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now what you have to know about John, who's writing this, is that John, this is John, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John who at the Last Supper is reclining with his head on Jesus' shoulder. And he's there. He's the one that's probably closest to Jesus. He's the only disciple that went to the cross and was actually there when Jesus was crucified. And so when he says, this is love, this is how God showed his love for us, he knows because he saw it firsthand. And I imagine that as he's writing this, those memories of watching his friend and his Savior being nailed to the cross, the blood dripping down, I I imagine that there are tears hitting the parchment as he writes these words. And he recalls the love that was demonstrated for him and for all believers. And he goes on in verse 10 and he says, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, this morning, that verse, verse 10, it says, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. This is where it begins. If you want to be able to experience and express the love of God, it begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And our prayer for you this morning is that you have experienced that that you have recognized that God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you, that you could be forgiven, 
that you could experience this love, that you would be able to respond to this love. That is God's desire for you. God's desire is that you would know his love. And we see this again in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we're going to see again how God's love is expressed. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. And I I want us to note that. That Christ did not die for good people. He didn't die because we we deserved it. He didn't die because of anything that we had done. He died for us when we were ungodly. When we were unlike God, he died for us. It goes on and says, For rarely will someone die for a just person, although for a good person someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has demonstrated his unconditional love for us in this way. His desire is that we would know that love, and out of that love, we would be able to give something back. We would be able to respond and to reflect the same love that God has given us to to God himself and also to our neighbors, to our neighbors, that we would be able to respond and reflect God's love to the people around us. C.S. Lewis says it this way, When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I have learned to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. What is he saying here? He's saying you've got to go to the source of love. If you expect to love anyone, any person, put the name in there. Your earthly dearest. Who is your earthly dearest? Put the name of your spouse in there. Put the name of your child. Put the name of your classmate in there. If you expect to be able to love them at all, you must first love God. And then out of that love for God, as you experience it, then you're able to turn around and express the love for your earthly dearest. You'll have greater capacity to express that love. And Jesus is simply asking us to respond to what he's done for us. That's all he's doing. He's asking us to respond to what he's done for us. The second, second thing we see is this, that our love for God and for our neighbor is the ultimate motivation for all the other commandments. Our love for God and for our neighbor is the ultimate motivation for all the other commandments. Look at what Jesus says in verse 36. Uh, Starting in verse 37, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. The first and greatest, the number one priority, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is your love for God. And your love for God ought to be evident to every single person around you. Your neighbors, your co-workers, the people that are driving on the busy freeways with you, they ought to be experiencing the love of God that comes from within you. They ought to be experiencing that through you. Yet 50%, 50% of Americans can't even name their neighbors. And Christians are no better. 
How can you possibly love your neighbor when you don't know their name? How can you possibly love your neighbor when you don't even know their name? It's interesting, all the things that we prioritize, all the things that that we put first in our lives, our Bible studies, knowing the Word of God, uh, being able to live out all the commands, all these things we put priority on, yet when it comes to the very first commandment, it gets swallowed up by all the other things. And it takes a back seat to our selfishness and our busyness. I don't know about you, but as I thought about that this week, and I thought about my ultimate motivation, and I thought about the things that God calls me to, very rarely do I stop and think, how am I doing at the, at the greatest commandment? You know, a lot of times I ask my question, well, have I read my Bible enough? Have I been praying enough? Have I been meeting with other people enough? Have I been sharing the gospel enough? But that question of how am I doing at expressing God's love, you know, it just always catches me that oftentimes I just feel like I'm too busy. I'm too busy to follow the thing that Jesus said that we ought to do first and foremost. I think this is reflected in a prayer from a man named Arthur Burns. Uh, A number of years ago, there was a group of politicians that would meet at the White House and they would have a Bible study regularly. They would take turns leading it. And Oz Guinness is the theologian who records uh, something that happened at one of their meetings. He says that one of the new guys was asked to lead the Bible study. And so he's leading the Bible study, and at the end, he calls on this man, Arthur Burns, one of the economists in the White House at the time. He says, Mr. Burns, would you please close us in prayer? And what he didn't know, the reason why everyone was so shocked is that Arthur Burns was Jewish. This is a Christian evangelical Bible study. And so Arthur Burns stands up and he says, sure, I'll pray. And he says, God, my prayer is that every Jewish person would come to know Jesus. I pray that every Muslim person would come to know Jesus. And Lord, I pray that every Christian would come to know Jesus. Amen. What's he saying? Why would he pray that prayer? What he was communicating is his desire for every person to live out the commands of Jesus, that they would live like Jesus lived. Because so often we say, oh, I know Jesus, I had my Bible study, I memorized my Bible verses, I know these things, yet we forget what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Don't do what he says. If we could just keep the first and greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment together, how much more evident would the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ be to the people who live around us? It's the motivation for us to love God and to keep the rest of the commandments. This love for God and love for our neighbors is what motivates us to keep the rest of the commandments. Look, if you will, at um, Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, you see this refrain throughout the New Testament that this is the greatest commandment or all the commands are summed up in this, love your neighbor. In Romans chapter 13, it says, uh, starting in verse 9, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, and do not covenant. And whatever other command, all are summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. All the commands are summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. 
Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Some feel pretty good about ourselves. Man, I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. I haven't created any golden calves and set them up in my, in my living room. I haven't gone out and committed adultery. I'm doing pretty good. I haven't committed murder yet. Day's still young. And so we feel really good about ourselves. But Paul says, if you're not loving your neighbor, if you're not expressing the love of God to them, then you have not even begun to keep the commandments. You've not even begun to keep the commandments. How do the people around you experience the love of God? Because you are in their lives. Let's look at another verse. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. It says this, it says, For you were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for, for the flesh, for selfishness, but serve one another through love. All right, what's he saying there? Think about this. We live in a country with perhaps the greatest freedom in all the world. We have a tremendous amount of freedom. There are places in the world where if you go to your neighbor and you try to show and express the love of Christ to them, it will cost you your life. It will cost you your life. Yet here in America, we have the freedom. He goes on and says this, the entire law is fulfilled in this one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Can you really say that you're loving your neighbor as yourself if you're not willing to go 100 feet to knock on their door to get to know them, that you would have the opportunity to enter into their lives and express the love of God to them? I don't know about you, but that's convicting for me because there are a lot of times this past week it was hot and muggy outside and I just didn't want to go outside because it was uncomfortable or I'm tired and I just want to sit on the couch instead of going outside and being a part of my neighbor's lives. Thankfully, we live on a great street that makes it easy to be in their lives, to have those relationships. But man, how many times do I let my own selfishness take over one last section I want us to look at, James, James uh, chapter 2, verse 8. James chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Let me get there. I thought I had it marked. Forgive me. Well, I don't have it. Do we have it up on the screen? All right, here it is. It says, Indeed, keep the royal law prescribed in the Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Do we have the next verse? I don't think so. All right. It goes on and it says, Look, if you are keeping the law, if you're trying to keep the law, yet you fail at one point, if you fail at one point in the law, then you're guilty of breaking the entire law. So if you fail by committing murder, then you're guilty of breaking all the other laws. If you fail by committing adultery, you are just as guilty as if you had broken all the other laws. If you fail to love your neighbor as yourself, then you are just as guilty as having broken all the other laws. And what pains me is that I've been a part of ministries before where I have good Christian people, people who love God, they know His Word, they've got it memorized, they're teaching their kids amazing things. Yet when you talk to them and you say, well, how's it going with your neighbors? Well, I don't talk to them. You know, they use language that I don't approve of. 
And so we stay inside our house. I can remember one time, a ministry that I was a part of, one of the moms said, you know, I can't wait for this sports season to be over because that means I don't have to see these women anymore. I just can't stand the way they talk. So I've been sitting in my car waiting for practice to be over because I know that if I go over there with them that I'm going to have to listen to all these things. She was so concerned that she might accidentally break one of the commandments that she would not go over and interact with these people who needed Jesus Christ in their lives. How often do we do the same thing because we're selfish? Because we're selfish. Or because, as James talks about showing favoritism, we, and I'm guilty of this, I like to be around people that think, act, look, and talk like I do. Right? That's natural. Anybody else guilty of that? Like you, When you think about who you want to hang out with, you want to hang out with people that like the same things you do. But God's love compels us to show compassion, to not favoritism, to not look at someone and say, hey, just because this is in your life, you're not worthy of my love. You're not worthy of God's love. Or you're not worth the time. You're not worth me getting up off my couch and going outside. If you're guilty of breaking one of the laws, you're guilty of breaking all of them. And we read in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, if you've been to a wedding or you plan to go to a wedding anytime soon, I guarantee you are likely to hear these verses in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, if I speak in human or angelic language but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. I'm nothing. I don't know if you've ever given a cymbal or a set of drums to a little kid that's never played, and all they do is they bang on stuff, and it's really loud and annoying. That's what Paul is saying here. When you act and you say, hey, you know what? I've got the Bible memorized. I've got all these things done. And you want to sit there and you want to talk about how America is going to hell in a handbasket and you want to quote all these historians and all these historical figures and these theologians to prove your point, yet you can't walk across the street and show love to your neighbor. You are irrelevant. Get up. Enter into their lives. I had a theology professor when I was in seminary who said a good theologian, a good Christian always does his Bible study with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Meaning that you have to not only understand the Word of God, but you have to understand the world around you, what's going on around you. And I started thinking about that this week and I thought, you know, there's one thing that he's missing. You see, I think, I think good Christians, good theologians, not only do their Bible study with the Word of God in one hand to understand what God's Word says in the newspaper in the other to understand the world that's going on around them, I think they also do it with their muck boots on because they need to go out and wade through the crud of other people's lives in order for that Word of God to make any sense at all. Do you have your muck boots on? Have you thought about that? Have you entered into someone's life? Are you willing to get a little bit dirty? Or are you so concerned that I might break one of the commandments that you sit built up behind your walls not willing to enter into someone's life? Are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving your neighbor? 
The last thing that I want us to see is that our expression of love for God and our neighbors leads us to deeper experience of God's love. The more you lean into God, the more you experience his love, the more you will get out of it. The more you will get out of it. And the same is true, the same way, the more you give love to the people around you, the more you are going to experience it right back. I've talked about our neighbors. Uh, Man, we are so blessed with the street that we live on. You know, man and I moved in and we had this plan, like we're going to be the, you know, we're going to go out and we're going to get to know all of our neighbors. We're going to love on all of our neighbors. And, you know, I'm the pastor, so it's my job to minister to the people on my street. And, you know, this is what we're going to do. But it wasn't long before we found that they were ministering to us just as much, if not more, than we were ministering to them. Hey, let your kids come play down in our backyard so you guys can have a few minutes to yourself. Hey, you go inside and and finish doing what you're doing. We're going to watch the kids out here. Or finding out that that one of our kids is sick because we posted something on Facebook and before you know it, we've got meals and and Pedialyte and all this stuff showing up at our house. And I'm thinking, man, I'm, I'm supposed to be the one giving to you. Like, this is what I do. Yet I found the more I gave of myself, the more I was beginning to receive. All of that love, it was... It was overwhelming to experience that kind of love. Overwhelming to see that kind of love and to feel that kind of love. And I think deep down, every single one of us desires to experience that. In order to, for us to experience that, we've got to express that love. Man, I, I, I've got great neighbors. I know a lot of them are here this morning. Um, and it, it just... It's awesome to me to be able to worship with the same people that live on my street and to know that when our kids are outside playing, that they're being cared for. And all of that comes out of a reciprocation of love for one another and for God. What is driving you? What is driving you this morning? If we could simply do what Jesus said we ought to do, to love God and to love our neighbors, We could change the world because that's exactly what God did in the first century through his church. Read through the book of Acts. You'll see that it's true. All they did was love God and love each other, love their neighbors. And I believe that if we as a church were to begin doing this, that we would change our city. And we would begin to see our city change, our nation change. And the world would be changed as more and more people got to experience and express the love of God. What is driving you? What is driving you? As we close this morning, I want to encourage you to reach reach down into your bulletin. You'll see a little spot there that says, take two. And I want us to just take a minute and think through, what is driving me? What is my ultimate motivation? Is it the love of God and the love of my neighbor? Am I keeping the primary commandments or is there something else? And I would just encourage you to write down something that God is saying to you. Maybe you've identified that your love for God and your love for your neighbor is not your ultimate motivation, that there's something else and that you need to confess that. You need to write that down and rearrange your priorities. Maybe there's something else that God said to you. Maybe there's a name of a neighbor that he's put on your heart and God has said, when you get home, I want you to go knock on their door and introduce yourself. I want you to take steps to get involved in their lives, that you would get to know them, that they would be able to experience my love through you. 
what is it that God is saying to you this morning? Whatever it is, I encourage you to write that down in that section where it says uh, God is saying or, or uh, take two, and then underneath that, write down what you're going to do about it. Write down what you're going to do about it. Let's take two.